You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 20, The Sugar and Currency Acts of 1764. The end of the Seven Years' War, known in America as the French and Indian War, left Britain in undisputed control of North America east of the Mississippi. Today we're going to step away from the military battles and take a look at the exciting world of 18th century tax policy. Military victories had left Britain awash in debt and with the expenses of controlling and governing many new territories, raising the necessary funds to pay off the war debt and manage the empire led to a series of policies that probably made great sense to the politicians in London at the time. In hindsight, though, it eventually led to even more conflict and another costly world war. In London, Prime Minister Grenville wanted to increase revenue. The recent war had about doubled Britain's national debt, which was sitting at about 150% of GDP. Interest on the debt alone was substantial and a growing portion of the budget. International lenders already considered Britain a high risk. Even at high interest rates, the government found it increasingly difficult to acquire new loans. Since the British pound was based on gold and silver, the government could not simply print more money as it might today. With the end of the war, military costs would go down, of course. Payments to the German states for military defense would go down, as would subsidies to the colonies to pay for militia. The government could also shrink its army and navy. But even after all those cuts, there was still more work to be done, not only to end the deficits, but to begin reducing the debt itself. British possession of Canada will require a large and expensive standing army in North America to ensure the French population would not attempt to return the territory to France. This would be a major added expense when compared to pre-war expenses. Grenville estimated the cost of maintaining 10,000 soldiers would be about 220,000 pounds sterling a year. This was down from the 350,000 pounds sterling that Parliament was spending on the colonies during the war, but was unsustainable unless the colonies could contribute a substantial amount to help cover the costs. Now, since we're going to be spending some time talking about money and taxes, this might be a good time to go over how money worked in the British Empire at this time. Then, as now, British currency was based on the British pound sterling. At the time, though, a British pound was literally the value of one pound of the metal silver. It's a little tricky to convert the value of one pound in 1764 to modern U.S. dollars, but a good guide may be that in 2017 today, a pound of silver would cost a little over $250. I've looked at a bunch of attempts to calculate inflation from the 1760s to today. Any such calculation is tricky because you're comparing a wide variety of goods and services whose ch prices have changed at wildly differing levels. 
a comparison of wages alone makes no sense, since the standard of living for the typical worker has also changed greatly. So with the caveat that others will come up with quite different conversion rates, my best calculations show that one British pound sterling in 1764 would be worth about $220 in U.S. dollars today, 2017. And that's not too far off from simply using the value of silver compared to then and today. In 1971, Britain converted to the decimal system, but before that, pennies and shillings were valued very differently against the pound. In the 1760s, a pound was worth 20 shillings, meaning a shilling would be worth about $11 in modern U.S. currency. There were also 12 pence in a shilling, meaning a penny, pence is the plural of penny, back then would be worth about one U.S. dollar today. Pence could further be divided into farthings, four farthings equals one penny, so a farthing was worth the equivalent of about a quarter for the modern American. The symbols for each British denomination are based on Latin monetary terms. The pound symbol, which is, basically looks like a fancy L, comes from the Latin word libre. The S, used for shillings, comes from the Latin solidi. And the D, used for pence, comes from the Latin denarii. It might also be helpful to know how much the typical worker back then earned compared to today. Of course, wage data is a little spotty from the era, but studies I've seen indicate that unskilled laborers earned about 12 pence per day for farm labor in England. A craftsman in the building trade earned about 22 pence per day. And work weeks were typically six days long, meaning an unskilled laborer could take home a little over one British pound sterling per month. In other words, in inflation-adjusted dollars, a common laborer had to work and support a family on less than $3,500 per year. So say what you will about the problems caused by the Industrial Revolution, it definitely increased our expectations about reasonable pay and standards of living. Pay rates in the colonies, where there was less supply and greater demand for labor, was usually higher than in England. Making direct comparisons, again, can be difficult because some colonial pay was made using colonial pounds, which tended to be worth a little less than British pounds, and it's not always clear which currency is listed in the wage records. However, the records show that a common laborer in the colonies could make about two shillings, or 24 pence, per day. A more skilled laborer, like, say, a bricklayer, might make about three times that amount. Therefore, common laborers in the colonies made about double what their counterparts in England made. Colonial workers with some skills showed an even greater premium disparity between their English counterparts. Even so, making one British pound sterling required a week or two worth of work for most low-level working-class jobs. Now, don't worry, none of this is going to be on the test. I just thought it would be helpful that when we talk about a three-shilling tax on something, that you have some frame of reference as to what that really cost people. All right, let's get back to Prime Minister Grenville's revenue problems. Since many of the costs were coming from the need to maintain larger militaries to protect the newly acquired colonies, it seemed only reasonable that the colonies should assist in shouldering some of that financial burden. British subjects in England, Scotland, and Ireland were already taxed to the hilt. One historian estimated that the average English subject paid about 23 shillings per year in taxes. By contrast, Massachusetts, which is thought to be the highest tax colony at the time, paid about one shilling per year in taxes. 
the British colonies, in fact, were probably one of the least tax areas in the world. British subjects were already hit up with a wide variety of taxes. Import tariffs also contributed greatly to British coffers. Unlike tariffs in the colonies, British customs agents diligently collected tariffs in Britain and enforced trade laws. During the war, Parliament had raised revenue in England by levying a new tax on cider. Opposition to the cider tax was in part because people already felt way overtaxed, but also because most cider was made locally on farms in England and Wales. Enforcement, therefore, required government officials to search farms for cider production and make sure proper taxes were paid. This intrusion on people's homes did not sit well with the farmers. The issue became a big part of what brought down Lord Bute's ministry in 1763, and it remained unpopular during Prime Minister Grenville's term as well. With the war over, members of Parliament were feeling constituent pressure to lower taxes, not raise them. Increasing taxes on workers was impossible since they were barely getting by on subsistence pay. Increasing taxes on the wealthy in Britain was not a popular option either. The aristocracy controlled Parliament. Raising taxes on your friends and family was not going to go over well at home. Everyone already felt overtaxed in England, and members were in no mood to hit up voters for any more money. Grenville, therefore, did not see any way to get Parliament to go along with new taxes at home. And as I already said, since the increased costs were the result of the colonies, the colonies had to cover at least some of those costs themselves. Still, with the well-known sensitivity that colonists had about taxes, Grenville knew he had to tread lightly. The best place to start was with trade tariffs. Tariffs could be collected at ports, meaning one did not have to send tax collectors all over the colonies. Further, tariffs on certain imports had existed for decades, even if poorly enforced. Therefore, there was no valid principle that should prohibit its collection. And one of the easy tariffs to start with was a tariff on sugar. Almost all colonists' sugar came from the French-controlled islands in the West Indies, what we call the Caribbean today. You know, the islands Britain just gave back to France with the Treaty of Paris. A tariff would actually end up putting most of the cost on the French planners. Since merchants were unable to increase prices on luxury goods, they would be forced to pressure the French planners into lower prices in order to maintain sales. Sometimes called the American Duties Act, or simply the Revenues Act of 1764, the law which is commonly known today as the Sugar Act placed a tax on the importation of sugar, molasses, coffee, Madeira, which is a type of wine, as well as a range of other luxury goods such as silks and textiles. Grenville thought the law would be relatively palatable for several reasons. The main one being that the law actually cut tariff rates. The Navigation Acts of 1733, also called the Molasses Act, had implemented a tax of sixpence on a gallon of imported rum. The new law cut that in half to threepence. Who doesn't like a tax cut? Well, no one really saw it that way because no one actually paid the tax from the Molasses Act. Tariffs under that act only brought in about 1,800 pounds per year with all colonies combined. The rate was prohibitively high and intended to cut off trade with the French colonies. So even at half that rate, the tax was still high. It cost about 14.5 pence to make a gallon of rung, which sold at wholesale for 18 pence. 
so a three-pence tax would mean that the rum maker would essentially only break even unless rum prices increased or molasses costs decreased. The existing six-pence tax meant that a law-abiding rum manufacturer would actually lose money. That's why traders evaded the tax, paying off customs collectors at a lower rate to let the product into the colony. The corruption had become routine, with tax collectors taking a two-pence payment for each gallon. Therefore, a three-pence tax would effectively be a 50% increase in taxes. And to make sure the colonists actually paid the tax, the new law also overhauled how it would be collected. First, all disputes would be heard in the British vice-admiralty courts. In other words, naval officers would judge smuggling or tax evasion accusations, not local juries. The admiralty courts had always had jurisdiction over such cases for at least the last century. However, it was easy and commonplace to remove the hearing to a local colonial court. Therefore, the merchants always did this, and with the help of popular and persuasive lawyers like James Otis, almost always won their cases in front of sympathetic juries. The new law would also force trials to go to admiralty courts in Halifax, Canada, meaning one would have to go through the expense and difficulty of travel to face almost certain prospects of the government winning the case. The law also helped customs officials by limiting damages that they might have to pay if they seized a vessel in error. Under the old law, a ship owner could sue customs officials for any mistaken seizure and count on a friendly jury to find against the tax collector. Under the new law, such cases would again go to the admiralty courts, where customs officials would stand a much better chance of winning. The new law required merchant ships to post bonds, which could be forfeited if their cargo did not match their manifests, as well as a host of other costly and confusing paperwork. Like the Molasses Act before it, the Sugar Act only applied to trade with non-British colonies. Colonists in America were free to go to the West Indies and trade with other British colonies there. The problem was that most of the sugar came from French colonies. It was better quality and cheaper. The French colonists were also more eager to buy the products that the North American colonists wanted to sell them. Things like fish, lumber, and flour. Therefore, trade only with the British West Indies was not really a viable option. Some in Parliament, however, thought that the competitive advantage for the British West Indies might eventually encourage some of the French islands to be more amenable to joining the British Empire in the future. So for politicians in London, the Sugar Act seemed like it would solve several problems. The new law would raise some revenue, end the institutional corruption that had developed in the colonies, and also encourage French colonies to be more disposed to join the British Empire. They had gotten used to selling rum to the British colonies in North America, they no longer had French colonial markets in Canada, and France did not import much rum. Therefore, the colonies would get stuck making less because of the tariff. They would have a greater desire to become British colonies and again enjoy free trade with North America. It's a win-win. What could go wrong? Parliament passed the Sugar Act in April of 1764, with little debate or dissent. If anything, members thought Grenville should have been more aggressive in increasing tariffs on the colonies. Politically, though, Grenville wanted to ease into the issue of colonial taxation slowly, lest he set off colonial revolts, which would only cost the government more money down the road. Later that same year, Parliament took up another issue, 
some colonies had been printing their own paper money in order to make up for the lack of sufficient gold and silver available in North American markets. Virginia, in particular, had financed much of its wartime expenses by issuing paper money, which could be returned to the colonial government for payment of taxes. This provided an easy way to remove the notes from circulation once the need for the currency fell. In effect, the paper money acted as a loan to the government. The government pays its bills now with paper, then gets it back and retires the notes instead of getting cash in later tax years. The problem for London merchants was that the colony ordered that the paper be legal tender for payment of private debts as well. The official exchange rate was set at 125 Virginia pounds for 100 British pounds. Although Virginia was fairly conservative in the way it issued the money, the Virginia pounds began to lose value and were trading at around 160 pounds for Virginia to 100 British pounds. Virginia plantation owners had a great deal of debt with London merchants who were facing their own credit crisis in 1764. If Virginians could repay debt at the 1.25 to 1 ratio, London merchants would end up taking a serious loss on the repayment of these colonial debts. Now, Grenville had been contemplating a currency plan of his own to unify all colonial currencies, but did not want to tackle that problem in 1764. However, a member of Parliament, who also happened to be a London merchant trying to collect on a fair amount of colonial debt, proposed the Currency Act in order to protect his own interests as well as those of many of his colleagues. The Currency Act restricted the use of colonial paper money. It prohibited colonial legislatures from mandating that paper be accepted for the payment of private debts. In other words, London merchants could demand payment in British pounds. Like the Sugar Act, the Currency Act raised little controversy in Parliament. New England was already under similar restrictions, having to use notes that could be exchanged for gold and silver in order to maintain value. The new law targeted Virginia's currency law, which was seen as simply a ripoff for British merchants. Getting paid back in money that was worth the same as was lent seemed perfectly reasonable to everyone in London. Clearly, Grenville was proceeding cautiously and with great thought to his plans. He deliberately withheld plans for a colonial stamp tax in 1764 because he wanted to start slowly with the less controversial tariff policies. This would begin to pay money into the government coffers and would acclimate the colonists to the idea that they needed to contribute more to the empire's costs. He also tried to avoid side controversies by shutting down attempts to establish Anglican bishops in New England, at least for now. That's an issue we talked about a couple of episodes ago. If anything, Parliament seemed to be pushing Grenville to act more quickly and forcefully. During the debate on the Sugar Act, Grenville commented that the colonies had to contribute toward paying for their costs. The main response by some members was that the colonies should be paying all of their costs. They needed to become self-sufficient and not a drain on the budget. Parliament pushed the Currency Act on Grenville before he was really ready to act on that. Parliament overall seemed more eager than the Prime Minister to shift to a peacetime economy and get colonial revenues headed in the right direction. Yet, as carefully and slowly as they were moving, it did not seem to occur to anyone in Parliament to involve the colonies in any of these plans. Many of the colonies had agents in London who essentially acted as lobbyists. Colonial royal governors also could have performed 
an ambassadorial role, providing feedback from colonial legislatures and popular opinion to help shape the policy. Governors certainly provided intelligence on reactions to policies already in place, but did not play any real role in shaping future policy. Parliament considered tax and trade policy to be well within its authority for the entire empire. There seemed to be little dispute on that, at least in London. The colonies, however, had an extremely different view, which would soon become evident. Next week, the colonists expressed their opinions on the new Acts of Parliament.